Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, as we continue our way through this little epistle of James, it's small but powerful. After a number of the studies in the book of James, I came away feeling like I had gotten a good grace beatdown. <laughs> because James is so practical, so straightforward, uh, because he was a pastor, and he loved his people. But he loved God and loved his word, and he wanted to help his people and encourage them and equip them to live life in this world. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 are our text this morning. You'll follow along now as I read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, as we have learned in our study of the book of James, the dominant theme of this book is the fact that We must be doers of God's word and not hearers only because faith without works is dead. It's non-existent. And James says this is because faith is not merely an intellectual belief. It's a living, active faith that affects the way you live. It must. You say, well, why? Well, because biblical Christianity begins with the heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And that amazing inner transformation, that new life in Christ, must be and will be evident in the life. It will be manifested outwardly by living in obedience to God's word, which results in good works which, as we've learned in James, will be reflected among other ways by keeping a tight rein on your tongue, by sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others, and by personal purity, an uncompromising moral and spiritual stand in regard to the world. 
That is the point that James is making. That true saving faith in our hearts will be evident by the fruit of our lives. It will be manifest in good works. In other words, what we do will reveal who we are. And then when we got to chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, where James dealt extensively with the tongue, we learned that the genuineness of a person's faith is also revealed by his speech. The words we say will reflect the reality of our new birth because ultimately our words come from our hearts. And the tongue is the great revealer of the heart. And so what we say also reveals who we are. And this brings us to the verses we're looking at this morning, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, where James will show us that just as genuine faith manifests itself in good works and in the words that come from our mouths, genuine faith will also manifest itself by the wisdom we possess and practice. And the kind of wisdom a person possesses will be revealed by the kind of life that he lives. Those who possess genuine saving faith will manifest the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above, which is demonstrated in works. But on the other hand, those who possess the wisdom of the world will demonstrate by their lives that they have no saving relationship to Jesus Christ and no desire to truly worship, serve, or obey Him. So the verses we're looking at this morning are all about wisdom. And it's very important that we remember when James speaks of wisdom, he is not speaking of earthly wisdom gained by experience. He's not speaking about mere common sense. It is not intelligence and academic prowess or the acquisition of knowledge. It's not about educational credentials, position, or charisma. I mean, knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Wisdom is also not a matter of words alone. I mean, James does not deny that wisdom is spoken in words, but he also wants us to understand that the mouth is capable of incredible duplicity. It's capable of speaking words of blessing and words of cursing. I mean, we cannot know true wisdom by words alone. The wisdom James speaks of, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, is practical. And it's been called skill in living. And it's, pra- it's practical insight given by God that enables us to take biblical truth, spiritual truth, and to properly and effectively apply it to the details of our everyday life or to a specific problem or issue. And so you see, true wisdom is behavioral, not intellectual. It's seen in the skill of living righteously. Spurgeon once put it this way, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. To know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. And Spurgeon is exactly right. I mean, wisdom is not simply knowledge. It is knowledge applied. I mean, think about a person who's a good driver. They're a good driver not because they can drive fast or because they have a nice car. No, the good driver is the one who knows how to keep his vehicle under control. 
They know how to adjust their speed based on conditions. They see other drivers approaching and they respond properly to those drivers, such as those stopping or, or turning. Well, wisdom is like that. It sees life clearly and responds to life appropriately. True wisdom is active and, and productive. It's seen in a life that is full of mercy and good fruits. I mean, let me put it this way. Godly wisdom does not just see needs, analyze them, and condemn the causes that led to them. No, godly wisdom, true wisdom, also acts. It results in practical help. So true wisdom is practical. It's, it's behavioral. It's how we live. It's demonstrated in works and practiced by those whose faith is genuine. But you see, the sad thing is that most of us look for wisdom in the wrong place. Instead of looking into God's word for guidance in life, we embrace the world's way of thinking. And so more and more of us live our lives according to our culture's definition of wisdom. I mean, in our day and age, we, we tend to believe the wisest way to live is to pattern our decisions after the principles of this fallen world. But the world's wisdom is not true wisdom. It's not spiritual wisdom. Let me ask you, and, and think about this as we go through this passage. What type of wisdom do you possess and put into practice? Because this is an important question. Because the answer will reveal not only your inner character, but also the spiritual condition of your soul. In the text, James lays out for us the difference between true wisdom and false. And this applied to everyone in the churches to whom James was writing, and it applies to everyone in churches today. It applies to believers in all ages. Why? Because it's the word of the living God. It's relevant, always. And so in verse 13, James tells us that true wisdom is demonstrated by our actions, and then in verses 14 to 18, James contrasts false wisdom, worldly wisdom, with true or godly wisdom. First, in verses 14 to 16, he deals with worldly wisdom. And then in verses 17 to 18, he deals with godly wisdom. So let's look now at verse 13, where James teaches us that true wisdom is demonstrated by actions. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> James begins with the question. He says, who is wise, or he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? This word wise describes acquired knowledge characterized by the ability to use that knowledge for correct behavior or to skillfully apply that knowledge to the matter of practical living. The word translated here, excuse me, understanding is used only here in the New Testament. And it speaks of someone with expert knowledge, someone who is skilled, a, a specialist, if you will, or, or a professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to practical situations. And so James is asking, who is truly skilled in the art of living? 
Who has practical insight given by God that enables them to properly and effectively apply biblical truth to the details of their everyday life? Two things here. First of all, in asking this question, James is not really looking for a show of hands. I mean, obviously, most people reading this want to think of themselves as wise and knowledgeable, and almost anybody you would ask would raise both hands. And secondly, James' question does not imply that none of them are wise. But rather, he is challenging those who rashly assume that they are wise to examine themselves. Because not all who claim to have wisdom have it. And that's James' point. In effect, he's saying this. Do you claim to have wisdom and understanding? Then let's see the evidence. I can hear your words, but let me see your works. Let me see the evidence of it in your life. Look back at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It's interesting to note that the phrase, let him show, is the same one James used in chapter 2, verse 18, where he said, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The word show, which James uses, basically means to exhibit or display, and the meaning of, of his language is identical in both places. And so his point is, if a man claims to have faith, then let him show it by living a transformed life. And then here, if a man claims to have wisdom then let him show that wisdom by the way he lives. James wants us to know that the true test of wisdom is works, not words. And in the second part of verse 13, James tells us that true wisdom will show itself in three ways. If you claim to have wisdom and understanding, then James says, first of all, show it by your good conduct. You know, by his good conduct, let him show. The word good means moral excellence. The word conduct means your manner of acting, your daily behavior could be translated lifestyle. And this refers to the changed lifestyle of a believer, a topic that James already has dealt with in great depth. Christianity is not just a collection of religious ideas, nor is it merely a matter of of performing religious rituals. True Christianity permeates every part of what a man is and does. And so in practical terms, it will be expressed in behavior and in a lifestyle that is consistent with the genuine faith. It will produce good conduct, a, a morally excellent lifestyle. I mean, as with faith, wisdom and understanding that are not demonstrated in righteous, godly living are devoid of any spiritual value. Second, and more specifically, James admonishes us to show our wisdom and understanding by our works. By his good conduct, let him show his works. And the word works speaks of deeds, good works, doing good works. That's what what it means. And this relates directly to the main message of James' letter, that real faith produces genuine works. 
In the same way, spiritual wisdom manifests itself in good works. True wisdom and understanding is firmly tied to performance. It's not what you know. And it's not what you say. It's not enough to say, I have wisdom. It's not enough to speak wisdom. It's not enough to be able to speak all kinds of facts about the Bible and and explain all kinds of theological mysteries because mere talk, however orthodox it may be, proves absolutely nothing. It's how you live. It's how you live. Our works have to match our words. But as one man said, this is a hard pill for anyone to swallow. But then... That may be just because we are too used to consoling ourselves over the repeated failure of our deeds, matching our words by saying, it's the thought that counts. Until and unless our thoughts and words translate into godly conduct, they remain at best a goal and at worst sheer hypocrisy. Our works have to match our words. And so it is with wisdom. No works means there's no wisdom in the first place. And this means then you probably need to re-examine where you actually stand with the living God. James says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. The true test of wisdom is works, not words. James also says true wisdom will manifest itself in a very specific way. Look back at verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works, how? In the meekness of wisdom, or in the meekness that characterizes true wisdom. This word meekness is also translated gentleness. In fact, it's translated this way in Galatians 5.23, where we read uh, in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, then verse 23 Gentleness. It's the same word we have translated here as meekness. And James used the same word in chapter 1, verse 21, to describe teachability. I mean, there he said, and receive with meekness, or with a humble, teachable heart, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Meekness. And this word meekness is often misinterpreted as meaning weakness. But that's not the case at all. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness does not mean cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or a peace-at-any-cost kind of an attitude. Meekness is not indecisiveness, a lack of confidence, shyness, or withdrawn personality. As one man said, meekness cannot be reduced to wimpy niceness. Meekness is not weakness. Moses was one of the strongest leaders ever, yet he was called the meekest man on earth in Numbers 12.3. Now in this world of ours, the qualities that assure success are often thought of as strength, self-assurance, assertiveness, aggressiveness, even intimidation. But that's not God's way. God puts a premium on meekness. And this word meekness combines strength and gentleness, and it's often described as power under control. Power under control. 
This word speaks of the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance or of not having a superior attitude, you know, not demanding one's rights. It implies that a person's natural strengths, abilities, and mental powers are harnessed by the Spirit of God for the good of God's kingdom and others. It speaks of a submissive and and teachable spirit that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration toward others. One man said, the meek person has a sweet temper of, of spirit toward God, others, and the daily frustrations of life. He or she is not prone to anger, but humble, sweet, and mild. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said of himself, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, Jesus is the greatest example of this meekness, this gentleness, this particular fruit of the Spirit, as he is all of them. So meekness is a a God-honored character trait, a a fruit of the Spirit, and and it should characterize everyone in the kingdom of God. But James knew well, and, and so do you probably, the arrogant and superior attitude of people who are wise in their own mind. People who think they're wise are, are proud and arrogant and conceited. full of a false humility. But James tells us that meekness is what characterizes the truly wise. True wisdom recognizes and embraces that meekness is more like Christ, that that meekness actually achieves more beneficial results than does pride and self-promotion. And there's certainly a lot of pride and self-promotion in the church today. True wisdom, James says, is demonstrated in good conduct, godly living, you know, a morally excellent lifestyle that is full of good works done in the meekness that characterizes wisdom. And now after laying out for us the fact that true wisdom is is demonstrated by action, in the rest of the chapter, James contrasts worldly wisdom with true wisdom. First, in verses 14 to 16, he deals with worldly wisdom. Notice verse 14. In this verse, James mentions the evidences of worldly wisdom in the life. James begins with the word, but. But. And that is a word of contrast. So in contrast to a morally excellent lifestyle full of good works done in meekness that characterizes wisdoms, wisdom, James says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So the evidences of false wisdom in one's life are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. And notice the words, in your heart. It's been said the heart of man's problem is the problem of man's heart. And that's exactly right. 
And so when James begins to expose the evidences of false wisdom in one's life, he begins at the very center of things with the heart because he understands our outward actions are the result of our inward attitude. And he knew that there is a direct connection between the fruit and the root, the the signs and the source. I mean, it's true that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's also true that out of the abundance of the heart, a man acts. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, etc., etc., etc. And so James says the evidences of false wisdom in one's life are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Let's look at both of these. First, bitter jealousy. The word bitter has the basic meaning of pointed, sharp, prickly, or, or pungent. James uses it here metaphorically to describe the worst sort of jealousy, that which is harsh, sharp, you know, cutting and destructive. He has in mind the sort of person who is bitter and resentful of others because they have things or power or position or name recognition that he or she does not. This is the sort of bitter jealousy that results in disdain and even hatred of other people. And it has no concern for the feelings or welfare of those who are its objects. Because it's all about self. It's a perverse attitude that says, you have what I ought to have, and because of that, I don't like you anymore. Not only do I I not like you, but I'm going to devote all my efforts to getting what you've got. That's what verse 14 is describing. That's what bitter jealousy is describing. One commentator said, those whose lives are based on and motivated by human ungodly wisdom are inevitably self-centered, living in a world in which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered good and friendly. Whatever and whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and an enemy. Those who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom resent anyone or anything that comes between them and their own objectives. Bitter jealousy. The second evidence is selfish ambition. The Greek word translated selfish ambition speaks of strife, contentiousness, and, and extreme selfishness. It originally referred to spinning thread for hire, and then to sewing for hire, and then more broadly to any sort of work or undertaking that was done for personal gain. And so it's understandable that the word then came to be used of those who were willing to do absolutely anything to get elected to high political office or other positions of influence and power. It was used of personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost, which are the ultimate goals of all fleshly endeavors. It has no room for others, much less genuine humility. In fact, it's the antithesis of what the of what the humble, selfless, giving, loving, and obedient child of God is called to be. And let's not think for one second that churches and Christian circles are free from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. They are not. 
Sadly, there's plenty of it in the church. There's plenty of selfish ambition, political ambition in the church. I mean, you'll see it among singers, preachers, missionaries, and educators. Saints jockeying for higher position and elbowing and and climbing over one another to get to the top, no matter what they have to do or say. You see, when the wisdom of the world gets into the church, there's a great deal of fleshly promotion and human gratification, or glorification, excuse me. Notice what James says in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And the person who has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in his heart has one passion in life. And that is to advance his own interests through whatever means necessary. And when he does, he's proud then of his supposed wisdom that has brought him all of this success. And so he boasts, he, he brags, he's, he's arrogant. He's just so boastful about his achievements over and against someone or, or something else. But James says, do not boast. Do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, he's saying, look, stop claiming that your bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are a result of God's wisdom because this isn't wisdom at all. It's nothing but an arrogant denial of the truth. And a professed Christian who claims to belong to God and to have the wisdom of God, but he is proud, boasting, self-centered, loveless, and arrogant, is simply lying against the truth. His entire life is a lie. Oh, he or she may have attained a certain amount of worldly wisdom, but they don't have God's wisdom, true wisdom. Because true wisdom, the wisdom of God, is not evidenced by bitter jealousy, you know, selfish ambition, and arrogance, and boasting. So what is James' assessment of this sort of so-called wisdom that expresses itself in this way? Well, he says this about it. Notice, please, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual demonic. So in just a a mere handful of words, James says four things about the source of the kind of false wisdom he's been describing. Number one, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, he says. And this word above literally means originating from a source that is from above. In other words, it does not come down from heaven. That's what he's saying. So there's nothing godly about this so-called wisdom. It doesn't originate in heaven. It's not from a source above. It has none of the fragrance of heaven about it. No, it stinks of the earth. And that's why he says the the second thing about this wisdom is that it's earthly. It's earthly. And Paul uses the same word when he speaks of those whose mind is on earthly things. 
So this kind of wisdom is, is earthly. It's, it's from the earth. It, it doesn't come from heaven or from God. It, it doesn't qualify to be called divine wisdom or spiritual wisdom. It, it, it does have some functions on a natural level in this life. Certainly, it, it makes a contribution to earthly life. But the world is its source and boundary. It's, it's earthbound. It, it comes from and it's limited to the fallenness of the cursed earth. And this kind of wisdom never gets out of the pull of earth's gravity, so to speak. It is limited to the finite system of unregenerate men who do not know God. It is wisdom without spiritual illumination and it, it never rises above that. It goes no higher than the mind of fallen man. I mean, it has those limitations. And man's wisdom comes from his own reason, and it will eventually come to nothing because whatever does not come from God is destined to fail, no matter how successful it may seem at the time. So it's not from above, it's earthly, Thirdly, James says, it is unspiritual. It is unspiritual. It means natural. This Greek word is related to our word psyche. Our English word psychology uh, comes from it. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it's translated natural, referring to the opposite of spiritual. And so it refers to the natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In Jude 19, the same word is translated sensual. And the main idea there seems to be that of fallen man's fallen nature as opposed to the new nature given by God. And, and so the source of this wisdom is the natural man's thoughts attitudes, interests, and pursuits which come from fallen man's unsanctified heart and unredeemed spirit and is grounded in a humanistic view of the world and of man. It is earthly. It's natural. Nothing spiritual about it. It's, it's not the Spirit's wisdom from above. It's not from heaven. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and fourthly, James says, it's demonic. It is demonic. So not only are its roots not found in heaven, instead it is rooted in hell. And this means that worldly wisdom is literally of the devil, and that alone should cause us great concern. Because James is saying that the sort of wisdom that leads to bitter envy and, and selfish ambition and arrogant boasting is demonic in nature and origin. I mean, this is how demons think and behave. And they love nothing more than to seduce people into thinking and acting like they do. And listen, don't ever forget that the Apostle Paul talks about teachings or doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4. And here James says there's such a thing as demonic wisdom as well. I mean, demons have a strategy for this world and for this church and for your life. And at the heart of it all is, is to lie to you and to make it sound like the truth. 
I mean, they aim to convince you that following Jesus is stupid and, and anti-intellectual and on the wrong side of history and, and culture and, and, and contrary to the prevailing winds of those who are truly enlightened. You know, following Jesus will, will only cramp your style. It'll, it'll rob you of pleasures. It'll, it'll rob you of sensual and sexual pleasures that, you know, you deserve to experience. Such wisdom, James says, is demonic. And he doesn't want his readers or us to be duped by it. And as you've probably noticed, James' language of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic corresponds to that of the Apostle John, who who refers to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Worldly wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. And what in the end will result from this earthly, natural, demonic wisdom? Well, in verse 16, James tells us its destructive consequences. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition produce certain inevitable results, and James names two of them. First is disorder. The word means upheaval, a state of violent disturbance and disorder. It it has the basic meaning of instability and, and came to be used of a state of confusion, chaos, sometimes even of rebellion or anarchy. It describes divisions and disorder, what the Bible calls discord among brothers, waves of of chaos, confusion, disharmony, antagonism, and, and pettiness in any church where the false wisdom of the world prevails. I mean, it only stands to reason that disorder is bound to break out in churches where people are pursuing their own selfish concerns and partisan causes rather than the good of the entire body of Christ. In the many fights and and quarrels among Christians, the church splits, the the absence of purity and peace all suggest that something is seriously wrong. And very often that something is the absence of the wisdom of God and the prevalence of the wisdom of the world. Instead of producing harmony, intimacy, love, unity, and fellowship, worldly wisdom brings Disorder, and secondly, James says, every vile practice. Every vile practice. Just think about that. This word vile means evil, bad, wicked, worthless. It's a broad term that covers a multitude of specific bad results. In fact, there's, there's almost literally no limit to the sins that have followed bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I mean, think about it. It was through selfish ambition that Satan fell. It was through bitter jealousy that Cain killed Abel. It was selfish ambition that gripped Absalom and drove him to steal the hearts of the men of Israel. It was bitter jealousy that drove Haman to build what was to prove to be his own scaffold. It was because of bitter jealousy that the religious leaders delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate, and we could go on and on. 
When we use worldly wisdom in trying to do God's work, the consequences are destructive, disappointing, and not only does it come to nothing on earth, but it will lead to absolutely nothing in heaven because it will be among those things that will be burned up. You see, the wisdom that comes from hell will get us nowhere in heaven. You know, such is the fruit of the wisdom of this world. And now in verses 17 to 18, James turns to the wisdom that is spiritual and godly, the the kind of wisdom every one of us should be constantly praying for and and seeking to manifest in, in our daily living. And this is a breath of fresh air, isn't it? It's, it's a welcome contrast to the verses we just looked at. I mean, this wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom of heaven, is characterized by both internal and external fruits. And James describes it in seven ways. Notice verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above. In verses 14 to 16, James spoke of a wisdom that does not come down from above or from heaven. But here, he speaks of the wisdom from above or from heaven. Obviously, above and heaven are are used as synonyms for God. So what James is saying is that false wisdom does not come from God. In fact, it's earthly and spiritual of the devil, whereas true wisdom, it does come from God. It's what James himself would call a good and perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Because all that is good has a heavenly and divine source. And so it's important to underline this and to be crystal clear of this in our minds that that true wisdom is the free gift of a gracious God and in no way is the result of man's own scheming or imagination. As Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So true wisdom is not man-made. It is God-given. It comes from above. And and what does James tell us about this wisdom from, from above? First of all, he says, look, the wisdom from above is first pure. Pure. The wisdom from above, the wisdom that reflects God's value system and, and embraces God's purpose, purposes for the world, for his church, and for his people, and for your life and mine, it's pure. It's pure. It's pure in the sense of being undefiled, you know, morally pure. And this purity comes when you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ who himself is pure. And as a result, then, you are living a morally pure life as a new creation in Christ. And those who are pure have put aside sensuality, pride, and covetousness, which lie at the root of earthly wisdom. But there's more to this purity than simply this. Now this also speaks of the purity of our devotion to God. In other words, this person's heart is pure in the sense that their devotion to God is is pure. It is undiluted or unmixed. So when it comes to God and the things of God, they, they have an undivided heart. It's the idea of being pure, you know, resolute in your focus on God. It it speaks of concentrating on loving and serving Him first and foremost. That is the focus of your life. 
And it's supposed to be the focus of our lives. And James will repeat this idea later in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, Purify your heart, you double-minded. You know, that is, get rid of your mixed motive, your motives, your double-mindedness, and be committed and pure in your devotion. And so we see the purity which characterizes a life full of heavenly wisdom involves moral purity before God and devotional purity in our focus on Him. And it's important to note that purity is first on the list. You say, well, why is that important or why, why is that significant? Well, as one scholar says, this is because purity is the key to all the other qualities of wisdom that follow. And others agree calling it, calling purity the overarching attribute. One commentator put it this way. He said, James' opening declaration that the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure teaches that all who possess it are to make perfect purity in one's moral and devotional life a primary goal. The Christian who wants to live in wisdom can ask no better question regarding his thought, words, his works, and devotion than, am I pure? Am I pure? And you see, this is important because it's only when a man's heart is pure, when it's undivided in its devotion, that the characteristics James now lists will follow. These qualities are the result of a pure heart, not its cause. They don't make a man wise. They they manifest the fact that he is wise, that he actually possesses wisdom from above. So the wisdom from above is first pure, then, James says, peaceable or literally peaceful. And so often we think of this as as a compromising But this word peaceful or or peaceable doesn't refer to spinelessness that that does not want to get involved. I mean, James is not speaking about a peace that depends on walking away from conflict or, you know, a a peace at any cost. He's not talking about uh, appeasement. Rather, he's commending a, a peaceful spirit. The person walking in heavenly wisdom longs for peace. I mean, we have peace with God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, then we experience the peace of God. But heavenly wisdom longs for peace in relationships, peace in the church, peace in families. So this is a peaceful spirit, the person walking in heavenly wisdom, longing for peace. And at times... Uh, he or she may, may take a very strong stand and, and make some major waves because a biblical doctrine or truth is at stake, as they should. But they also make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, and, and they make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, Romans 14. They live out Paul's injunction Uh, As much as it is possible, you know, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is the person who seeks to preserve peace where it exists, to promote peace where it doesn't exist, 
Uh, it unites where false wisdom divides, and it reconciles where false wisdom rips apart. The truly wise are peace-loving and peace-promoting. Next is gentle. Gentle. It means to be reasonable and forbearing. And I think the simplest synonym is kind. You know, considerate of human weakness. Very, very patient with sinners. It's not cantankerous or argumentative. It's not angry, not hostile. It's graciously kind, you know, gentle. It's an attitude that doesn't hold grudges, but always gives others the benefit of the doubt. It recognizes that we are fallible people living among imperfect people, and so it demonstrates patience and tolerance, even when wronged. Next is open to reason. This is also translated accommodating, compliant, willing to yield. The NIV translates it as submissive. But open to reason is probably the the best translation. This does not mean the person who is open to reason is a spineless weakling, a a pushover, someone who is without strong convictions or moral courage. What it does mean is that he is open to reason. In other words, he is not so obstinately set in his own opinions that he refuses to listen to any alternative view. Rather, he has a considerate and respectful attitude that says to those who disagree with him, well, look, let's sit down and talk. I'd love to hear uh, your point of view. You know, help me to see what I'm missing here, or help me to see in, in what ways that I might, being, I might be uh, misled or, or misinformed. To be open to reason is the opposite of being stubborn and unyielding. It is to be teachable. It's to have a humble, teachable heart. So James is telling us a truly wise person is open to instruction. They are willing to listen to reason. They are willing to be corrected. They desire truth more than they desire to be right. Next uh, is kind of a double. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. And the heart which has experienced God's mercy will be merciful. And this is why Jesus declared in the fifth beatitude, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the, the, the believer who's full of mercy evidences his saving faith and transformed life uh, and his wisdom by forgiving those who have wronged him. But, but it's more than that. No, mercy speaks of more than that. It also includes reaching out to help them in whatever ways are needed. It manifests itself in acts of compassion for those who are in need or who are suffering. I mean, mercy in biblical theology is not just compassion, which results in pity and sympathy. It is compassion in action. And you'll notice James, he ties wisdom to action. He says true wisdom, the wisdom from above, is full of mercy and good fruits, which refers to every sort of good work or good deed. And by adding good fruits, James is calling mind to what he said again back in chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, that our faith must show itself in practical good deeds. Which means if we see someone in need and do nothing to help, you know, what good is a faith like that? James says it's not any good. 
It's worthless. It's non-existent. So James is telling us that godly wisdom is not theoretical, but practical. It rolls up its sleeves and, and takes action. And the wisdom of God, or the wisdom God gives, is wisdom for living, for doing. I mean, true wisdom demonstrates its genuine faith by good works. I mean, a believer uh, is, is to be known for doing good and for exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit. And do you see what James is telling us here? He's telling us if we're not full of mercy and good fruits, we're not wise. We're not truly wise. I mean, how radical is that? Well, it's, really, it's basic Christianity, isn't it? Next is impartial. The Greek word translated here as impartial is used only here in the New Testament. It speaks of a person who is consistent, unwavering, and undivided in his commitment and conviction and does not make unfair distinctions. In other words, he shows no partiality or favoritism. It seems James is underlining a point he made in chapter 2 that, that Christians should not show partiality, which is the idea of making an instant superficial judgment or evaluation of a person's worth based on nothing but outward appearances. So this is the person who takes no note of the color of one's skin or the size of one's home or the amount in one's investment portfolio or the quality of a person's clothing or uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the education they received. Now the impartial person is, is the one who is devoid or at least not governed by prejudice in whatever form that prejudice might assume. And certainly it, it does not mean that he or she never passes judgment or lacks discernment or the backbone to stand on what he or she believes is true. It simply means this person bases whatever judgments are drawn on the, whatever judgments are drawn on the principles of God's word. Listen to these words that were found written on the wall of a church in England. O oh God, May the door of this house be wide enough to include all who need divine love and human friendship, narrow enough to shut out all envy, pride, and strife. May its threshold be smooth enough to be, to be no stumbling block to children or to straying feet, yet rugged enough to turn back the tempter's power. That's a great prayer for any church, isn't it? And the spirit of that prayer expresses something of what James means when he says that true wisdom is impartial. And then finally, James says the wisdom from above is sincere. Sincere. The Greek word translated here as sincere literally means without hypocrisy. In other words, it's genuine. It's not phony. There's no pretense. There's no mask. There's there's no hypocrisy. You don't have to disguise. You don't you know you don't disguise your real aims and motives. In short, godly wisdom is sincere, so that what you see is what you get. 
The person with godly wisdom is not playing the part. He doesn't, he doesn't put on a Christian mask on Sundays to cover up the real person that shows up during the week. And in dealing with the question of sincerity, James is right back to the heart of things. What we are is all important because what we are will be manifested in what we do and what we say and in the wisdom we possess and practice. And what are the results of true wisdom? Look at verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I actually think that the the, uh, New American Standard is uh, much better. I mean, it, it... It gives the thought here more clearly. Let me read that to you. Verse 18 in the New American Standard says, or reads, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is making a very simple point. You reap what you sow. He says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Whereas earthly wisdom produces conflict, chaos, and and animosity, godly wisdom leads to righteousness. A harvest of righteousness or or godly living. So you see, loved ones, true spiritual wisdom is not what you know. And there are a lot of people who know a lot. But true spiritual wisdom is not what you know. It's the way you live. The person who professes to be a Christian must prove it by his works, his daily living. And if he's a true believer, he'll possess the wisdom from above and that wisdom will manifest itself in righteous, selfless, and peaceful living. And those who live by God's righteousness, those are the people that stand out from the crowd. Why? Well, because they're very different from the rest of the world. And we should be. But so much of the church today, and and this has been going on for decades now, tries to be just like the world because they, the, the saying is we have to be like them if we're going to win them. Well, listen, that's some of that wisdom from below, that wisdom from hell. It really is. It's from hell. Well, we're to be different. We're not to be a subculture. We're to be a counterculture. There should be a distinct difference in our lives. The church should be different from the rest of the world. So wisdom. True spiritual wisdom. How do we get it? How do we get true spiritual wisdom? Well, we have to understand that there's only one source of true wisdom, and that is God. I mean, God is the source Uh, Wisdom comes from God. And so in order to get this wisdom, then you have to get it from God, don't you? But to do that, you must first have a relationship with God. 
And the only way that, that you or I can come to know God in a personal relationship is by grace through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have believed, we trust Christ alone for salvation, we then have access to the wisdom of God through Christ, who Paul tells us has become for us wisdom from God. And so our relationship with Christ assures us access to this wisdom. And then Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Once we've been born again, We'll see God for who he is. There will be a, a, a holy fear, a holy reverence, an awe of God. Because we'll see him for who he is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is, he is he's awesome. He's loving and sovereign. So we, we will see God for who he is, but we will also truly see ourselves as we are. Sinners saved by grace. I mean, the only thing that separates us from the most vile sinner on the face of the planet is the grace and mercy of God. And so when we see God for who he is and we truly see ourselves, then we become humble and meek and therefore teachable and receptive to God's wisdom. But it doesn't come to us automatically without any effort on our part. So, what do we do to get it? Well, we have to continually be in the Word of God because wisdom comes through the Word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 97 through 100, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it, nev- it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, for I keep your precepts. We want wisdom. We have to continually be in the Word of God because wisdom, one of the avenues of wisdom, comes through the Word of God. In the New Testament, Paul commands us to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. I mean, none of us will possess the wisdom God has for us without spending long hours reading, studying, and meditating on God's Word. But there's more. Another avenue for this wisdom is prayer. You know, James stated back in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if we want Wisdom, and we want more wisdom, and we must ask God, who is more than willing, to give it to us generously. And lastly, we gain wisdom as we walk in obedience to God's word. You know, if you're wondering why, uh, you know, you seem to be lacking God's wisdom in your life, well, maybe you're walking in disobedience. Because we gain wisdom as we walk in obedience to God's word. The psalmist said in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of God or the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. 
good insight belongs to all those who do his commandments. Or we could go back to that verse in Psalm 119. I understand more than the ages, for I keep your precepts. In other words, because I obey your word. And so if we want to gain wisdom, we first of all have to have a relationship with God. It's going to lead to seeing God as he is and who we are. We have to be humble and meek and teachable and receptive. And then we've got to continually be in the word of God. And then we've got to continually be in prayer. And then we have to walk in obedience to God's word. Why would God give us wisdom if we're not planning on obeying it anyway? Right? He's not going to. So how do we get wisdom from God? Through faith and trust in Christ. I mean, we we gain uh, this kind of wisdom by knowing Christ, by making it our ambition to, to know him personally through the study of Scripture, through prayer, through walking in obedience. Listen, we're not going to find wisdom outside of the Word of God. And we're not going to gain the wisdom that's in the Word of God unless we apply ourselves to it. And this takes a lifetime of effort in that way. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lifetime of effort. So in closing, what we are will be manifested in what we do and what we say and in the wisdom that we possess and practice. And so let me come back to our question from the beginning. What kind of wisdom do you possess and practice? Worldly wisdom? You know, the wisdom that does not come from above, wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, Wisdom that's full of selfish ambition, bitter, bitter jealousy, leads to disorder and every vile thing. Or do you possess and practice the wisdom from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere? What type of wisdom do you possess and put into practice? Because the answer will reveal not only your inner character, but the spiritual condition of your soul. And of course, as believers, none of us you know, lives this life perfectly. But that's not an excuse just to keep living in sin. And so as we examine our lives this morning in light of what we learned, No doubt we're going to see, uh, you know, times where the wisdom that we're living is the wisdom of the world. So what we need is the grace of repentance. We need to run to Christ and confess that to him. Confess our sin. Ask him to forgive us and then ask for the wisdom from above. So as you examine your life, you may find that you need grace for repentance. On the other hand, as you examine your life, it may reveal that you need God's grace for salvation because you've been living a lie. 
There's nothing in your life except words that would give any indication that you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. So what kind of wisdom do you possess in practice? I mean, we need to, to dwell upon this and think about it and wrestle with this and ask the Lord to show us. Better to be challenged and convicted and come to repentance. Than to ignore it and to be damned. May the Lord reveal to each one of us our hearts and the wisdom that we possess and practice. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Bro.